Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. All right, well, let's start in prayer tonight, shall we? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We just ask you that you would have your way this evening with this service, Lord. The word of God never returns void. That is your promise to us, Lord. So as we speak the word of God, as we read the word of God tonight, may it go forward and just be a seed that is planted in the hearts and the minds of your people your church, and those per- perhaps that, that don't know the word, don't, might not even know you yet, but you have this day, this appointment, this video set on their calendar to have a real encounter with you. So we pray that that would happen tonight, that, uh, that all who hear the message would be encouraged, inspired, uh, and would hear from you and feel closer to you than they did before this evening. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. And amen. So uh, I want to mention one other thing I forgot to uh, mention a second ago in the announcements. This Sunday, okay, I know all you Life Story folks, you're already excited for uh, this Sunday coming up at 9.30 a.m. We're going to have little Jesus donkeys out front of the Rutledge West in Pegram where we've been meeting. Uh, We're going to have donuts and donkeys. How cool is that, right? So at 9.30 a.m., don't be late. Bring the kiddos and uh, stop by. It's just going to be a great festive day. Once worship starts at 10.30 a.m., we're going to have the palm branches waving as we celebrate the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus was as he rode into Jerusalem on the foil of a donkey so many years ago, 2,000 years ago, which was really the beginning of the redemption, the cross, and the empty tomb, right, that week. So uh, we're going to be celebrating Holy Week, uh, as it's widely known throughout Christendom, uh, beginning this Sunday. So don't miss it, guys. 9.30 a.m. for the festivities, 10.30 a.m. for service and worship. So be there. Don't forget about it. Uh, We will also continue our Wednesday night service next week, even though it's Holy Week. It's not going to stop us. We'll be moving forward. And then we're going to be having a Good Friday service as well, just communion and worship on Good Friday at the Rutledge West and Pegram. So make your plans. Uh, Life Story Church family team members, of course, make your plans to be there. And even if you've never visited, this is a great week to visit Life Story Church, guys, and figure out what God is doing in the West community of Nashville, Tennessee. So with that said, let's jump in. You guys have your Bibles ready? Hope you've got your Bible. Hope you got a cup of coffee. Because uh, I'm excited about what the Lord has to bring us tonight. So it's been amazing, an amazing study so far, hasn't it? Have you guys been blessed by this? Uh, it's not for the faint of heart, though. This study through Revelation, it's not, not necessarily for your casual uh, studier of the Word of God. We've been digging into some, uh, digging into some uh, texts that can be hard to understand if you just read them on the surface. So that's why we've been having such a good time uh, just peeling back the layers of the Word of God and showing what the Holy Spirit is really trying to tell us in Revelation for the, uh, uh, and for, well, all of the church, but in particular for the end times. So, uh, it's a study that has really uh, been for people with a lot of questions, hasn't it? 
Uh, even even uh, your average Christian who perhaps grew up in Sunday school, a lot of Christians, in, in, especially in the American church today, uh, have gone to church their whole lives, but they still they don't know what to make of Revelation. They don't really know how to understand it, and they have a lot of questions about Revelation. So I say, I want to lead in with this uh, tonight and say this study has been for people with a lot of questions, hasn't it? Amen? Well, let me see this first graphic. I want to just lay, lay some groundwork here this evening. Here are some of the key questions that we have been covering uh, that, uh, through this study that may come to mind. What happens when you die, right? These are key questions that really everybody has that we're seeing some answers come to us through this study in Revelation. Is there really an afterlife? And if there is, what is heaven like? And here's another one that is unfortunately propagating through the American church today. Is there really a hell? There's a lot of bad teaching out there right now that suggests that there is no hell. There is no punishment for wicked, right? Uh, and lastly, what is the nature of eternity? And that is a big one, guys. What is the nature of eternity and the reality that we find ourselves in? This reality that we find ourselves in, understanding the nature of time itself. Understanding the nature of time itself and the actual nature of the reality that we find ourselves, it requires some basic understandings uh, that have got to come before any serious discussion of any of these issues that we just covered. So uh, are we heaven bound? You know, right off the bat, the majority of people continue to believe that there is life after death. The majority of people, Christian or not, tend to believe that there is life after death, that everyone has a soul, uh, and that heaven and hell probably do exist, okay? Even outside of the church, most people believe this in regards to the key questions we just covered a minute ago. Yet, and can I see this next graphic? Yet, 50 million Americans are uncertain about their personal fate, statistically. Nearly two-thirds of Americans believe that they will go to heaven, whether they're Christian or not Christian. One uh, in four admitted, though, that they have no idea what will happen after they die. Less than half of 1%, by the way, expect to go to hell upon their death. Let that sink in. One in 20 believers, or, one in, or excuse me, one in 20 people believes that he or she will come back as another life form. That means 5% of our population believes they're coming back as a cow or a bug or something, right? Another 5% uh, believe that they will simply cease to exist. So let me, let's examine the beliefs briefly before we jump into chapter 14, let's examine the beliefs of those who believe that they are heaven-bound, okay? First of all, let's see this, this next graphic. 43% because they have confessed their sin and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They, that's for, of all the people in our nation that believe they're heaven-bound, uh, 43% because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. 15% because they have tried to obey the Ten Commandments. 15% because they are basically a good person. They will get into heaven. And 6% because God loves all people and will not let any people perish. So you see that generally, 
<laughs> this is some subject matter that is very relevant to, I mean, everybody. Almost, as you looked at the statistics, almost everybody be believes in some sort of afterlife and everybody falls into some, one of these categories. They believe, so, so studying something like Revelation, right? What is going to happen in the end? Discovering uh, uh, what, we ha what is in store for us in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Uh, what happens to the wicked when they perish, Right? What happens, what, what is the equation that leads to salvation? Equation to salvation, right? What is it exactly? Uh, people are all over the map on this stuff. And I think it's in large part due to the failure of the church to clearly uh, outline these things and, and, and address these, these topics and to honestly study parts of the Bible like Revelation. So much of the church today just wants to paint a paint a, a fairy tale picture and draw people in and 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 they don't tackle the hard issues they don't tackle doctrine they don't truly outline doctrine uh like they used to but we're a doctrine loving church amen some uh shocking contradictory uh uh findings among born again believers can i see this next graphic i think you'll be surprised to see these statistics 10% of Christians believe that people are reincarnated after death. These statistics are according to the Barna group, by the way. How can you believe in reincarnation and be a Christian, you might be asking. Well, I, I'm, I'm with you there. But yet 10% of people who claim to be Christians that were surveyed said they believed that there's reincarnation. 29% claim that it is possible to communicate with the dead. I think TV has a lot to, to do with uh, a lot of the beliefs that people have these days as well. 50% contend that a person can earn salvation, and this is huge, guys. 50% contend that a person can earn salvation based upon good works. Well, as we know, and as we've studied uh, a few weeks ago, we studied uh, the most important message ever, right? Something like that. Uh, at Life Story on Sunday morning. You can find it on the YouTube channels, right? You can find out exactly what repentance is, and we lay the gospel out in its purest form, guys. And we try to do that every time we come live to you, whether it's Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings. If we communicate anything, we want to communicate the beauty of grace. Amen? Faith plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus paid it all at the cross. Jesus was raised from the was raised from the dead in the empty tomb. Through faith in him alone is our does our salvation come. You will never earn salvation yet 50% contend that a person can't still among Christians. That'll tell you how prevalent legalism is still to this day. Uh in uh, in the church 50% contend that a person can earn salvation based upon good works. And lastly, uh, they also believe that there are multiple options for gaining entry into heaven. And this is among Christians, guys. This should be alarming to us and it should scream out loud to us that there is a need in the church to study the word of God in context and fully, and fully. And that's what we endeavor to do at Life Story Church. So if you've never been that's who we are, and we'd love to have you visit. Because church, many have redefined grace. Many have redefined grace to mean that God is so eager to save people from hell that he will change his nature. 
You've got to understand, a lot of people don't even really fully grasp that when they say they believe these things, what they're really saying, what they're saying is that God is so eager to save people that from hell that he will change his nature and universal principles for their individual benefit. How many of you know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? His word tells us that. Amen? I know you know that, Eva. Amen. Here's one more. I got one more for you before we jump in. Atheists, among atheists and agnostics, this is interesting. They're also confused. 50% of atheists and agnostics, people who are identified as atheists or agnostic in the poll, 50% of them believe that every person does have a soul. And they do believe that heaven and hell exist. And that there is life after death. Well, I thought you were an atheist and that there was nothing right? I think this is where the agnostics come in, I guess, that they say, I don't know. I make basically agnostic. Gnostic means that you're enlightened, that you have knowledge. Gnostic, right? Gnostics claim to have knowledge that other people didn't. Agnostic simply means ignorant. So people who claim to be ignorant, I'm sure skew the statistics here, here, but 12%, 12% of atheists and agnostics believe that accepting Jesus Christ I like this one, probably makes life after death possible. Church, these stats, if nothing else, simply bear witness uh, to the adoption of simplistic views brought to us by novels, movies, and the like. If nothing else, this should show us that pop culture has, 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 is having a greater influence on the church nowadays than the Word of God, and that is a travesty. It's sad to me because questions like these, questions like these deserve real answers. They deserve real answers. So who's ready to find some answers to some questions tonight? Anybody? Show me. I want to get you guys talking tonight, all right? I want you to uh, talk back and forth, comment to each other. Who's ready for some real answers tonight? Somebody say I. I? I. Eva? I? All right. Excellent. Uh, let's dissect and understand some of these things so they're not so scary anymore. So much of the church seems to be scared of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, shall we? Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Interesting here. Remember, as we have studied the 144,000 that appeared in Revelation chapter 7, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, okay? Believing Jews, essentially, okay? They didn't say here, now in Revelation chapter 4, notice it does not say that 143,099. No, it says 144,000 appeared on Zion. In other words, not one is missing. Not one of them is, them is missing. It's reminiscent to us of Jesus speaking in John chapter 17 when he's speaking to the Father and he says, not one have I lost. Not one have I lost. Amen? So these 144,000, they come through the tribulation miraculously, just like the three Hebrews did in Daniel chapter 3. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember the story? Uh, they're put into the fiery furnace and they look into the fiery furnace and there's four of them walking around, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there's one more walking around amongst them. Jesus there with them, right? But not one is missing. missing. So note, they are standing with him, with him 
on Mount Zion, okay? So oftentimes we think of uh, heaven as remote, and it seems more likely that this is another dimension uh, dimension uh, of present existence here that we're seeing, okay? Uh, not necessarily so much removed from ours. You know, we exist, and we've talked about this before, we exist in four dimensions, right? Height, width, girth, and a hundred years ago plus now, it was discovered that time is measurable. It's a measurable thing, right? So time is unique to the dimension that we live in. So, so much of understanding this stuff means that we've got to understand the simple, simple uh, laws of nature, so to speak, right? So there, got, Jesus was in the throne room, okay? Now standing on uh, the Lamb was now standing on Mount Zion at the same time. So there could be some dimensional things going on here, okay? In any case, not one is missing. Not one is missing. Jesus preser preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flaming fire. He preserved them here, the 144,000, just like he preserves us today. Who preserves you today? Jesus Christ. You know, not one of you will die, I believe, before the work that Jesus has specifically carved out for your life that he wants you to accomplish here on earth in this life. I don't believe that any one of you are going to die before you've accomplished that work because he's able to preserve us, right? So <clears throat> uh, that's a big statement. I could pause there, a rabbit trail there, but I'm going to keep going for time's sake. So we see here on, where is he? Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Uh, remember, David captured Mount Zion from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5. Mount Zion in Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3? It'll be a cup of trembling, a burdensome stone to all the world. Even now, it is Satan's focus. Even now, it is the focus of Satan. You know, you think about this. Uh, when Israel did not have Israel during the when they before the third kingdom had been reborn in 1948, right? In 1897, the Jews started to move back there. They started to purchase land from the Ottoman Empire, right? Uh, and that's a, an incredible study we've done before. But but when they started coming back, the land started to come alive again. I believe it was Mark Twain who, uh, who visited there in the 1800s and said it was nothing but a desert. Now it's blooming in full bloom again. Wine and flowers and everything, right? Well, um, you think about it, uh, when, when the Ottoman Empire had it, in other words, when Islam had it, they ignored it. But when Jerusalem, when the Jews wanted it back, when they took their land back, that's when when they, uh, when they it became this burdensome stone. It was that moment. So uh, Psalm 2, chapter 6 reads, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of what? Zion. Zion, uh, I pause here this long because this is the only mention of Zion in all of Revelation, okay? It's the Father's intention, church, to place Jesus upon the throne of Jesus. David. He promised Mary that it will happen. He And it will happen. He didn't promise to put the Palestinians on that throne, did he? No. In Jerusalem, in Jer Jerusalem, Jesus will sit on the throne of David, specifically, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 32, on Mount Zion. So let's read verse 2, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. Remember, the lamb is on the mountain. 
with 144,000. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, verse 3, as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, the elders. And no one could learn the song except the hundred and 44,000 who were redeemed from the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? They sing a new song. They sing a new song. We see that phrase over and over again throughout the scriptures about what it'll be one, like one day. You know what I mean? As a musician, you know, Amber and I moved here years ago, 20 plus years ago now to do music, and we did music on Music Row and all that fun stuff and whatnot. But, you know, we think of music and there's only so many chords and there's only so many, there's only so many uh, 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 keys and everything. And what we, we used to have fun just playing the same four chord progression. And you could sing about 20 different songs just using the same four chords, right? Uh, one day there will be a new song that no one has ever heard. And that, it'll be so beautiful and wonderful one day when we're there. It's, we see that new song referenced in uh, Psalms chapter 3, uh, chapter 40, chapter 96, chapter 98, chapter 107. I wrote them down. Uh, chapter 144, uh, chapter 149. It's throughout the word of God, sing a new song. They will sing a new song. Verse four, let's keep going. Verse four, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, 144,000, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, the first fruits to God, and to the lamb. So this is interesting. Virgins, right? Interesting. Does it, is this literal or is it figurative uh, virgins? Uh, probably both. Uh, probably both. Uh, you know, they keep themselves for the Lord alone. You know, we see, we see both types throughout the scripture. In Jeremiah, think of Jeremiah. Uh, on, he was on the threshold of Babel, Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah chapter 16, and he was forbidden to marry. Right? So he's to be kept. The prophet of the Lord, he was kept. Uh, also, note Jesus' warning uh, in the end times, woe to those who give suck, meaning breastfeeding and whatnot. Right? So, but on the other side, is it figurative? Throughout the word, uh, we, see, we, see, we see it as idolatry was labeled as spiritual fornication in Ezekiel chapter 16. You know, also keeping in mind the, ch- the church in Ephesians chapter 5, right, was to be a chaste virgin to Christ. That's how he, how he views us when he comes for us, right? Ch- uh, I think of within the context of 2 Corinthians 11 and 2, chaste versus Jezebel, right? The whore that rides the beast, the harlot, right? Quite a contrast. So first fruits, though. These are first fruits is what he said. First fruits to God and to the Lamb. What are first fruits? Does anybody know what they are? We find an excellent definition in Romans chapter 11, verse 15 through 16. Uh, the very finest. That's what the first fruits are. The very finest from an expected harvest is what it is. Israel will enjoy, church, a unique role in the millennial kingdom. These may well be the brethren from uh, Matthew chapter 25, if you're interested in looking that up. Let's keep reading, though. Uh, verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit. 
for they are without fault before the throne of God. So they're not taken in by the lie. Remember uh, Paul's words to us, uh, there will be a great uh, deception, all right, that will come upon the earth at that time. So these are not taken in during... uh, During that time period, they're not taken in by the lie. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. An everlasting gospel. So we're going to get into some different angels here as we study. Uh, Anybody want to guess how many... Uh, how many angels there are? Seven, right? We see sevens. So uh, for anybody who's got some free time on their hand and just loves to do different studies like this, take time sometime to see how many different sevens you can find in the Word of God. They're all over the place, right? So we're going to see seven angels here, okay? And I'm going to have an outline for us as well uh, at some point. Uh, But starting with the first angel here, okay? What do we see? What do we see? Today, the gospel of grace, faith plus nothing equals salvation. Today, that is proclaimed by men, right? It is proclaimed by you and by me, believer, right? Then, it will be proclaimed by angels is what we're seeing. The first angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel, right? It will be proclaimed by angels who are indestructible. Think of even the two witnesses will be proclaiming that gospel, now, ultimately, even the two witnesses are killed, are killed, and then they're brought back to life, right? And they ascend, which that word in the Greek suggests a slow rising, just like when Jesus ascended, which is a stark contrast to the rapture, which we see in Thessalonians and in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. But, but I digress here. It's going to be proclaimed by indestructible angels here. How cool is this? Verse 7, let's keep reading. Saying with a loud voice, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Mm. This is the final call, guys. Don't let that be lost on you here, okay? Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour, come on now, the hour of his judgment has come. This is the final call. This is it. Now this one is good news, good news for God's people, but bad, bad news for the rebellious earth dwellers, okay? As we've studied, we see these different groups of people, and unless you understand who these groups of people are, it can be confusing, right? There are people referred to as those who dwell upon the earth, right? Never has God ever referred to his church as those who dwell upon the earth, his beloved, his bride, right? Uh, the earth dwellers here, uh, you know, people that, people, and, and when, when he speaks of the 144,000, it names them, right? Uh, you know, there will be people that come to Christ during this tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, I believe. But unfortunately, as we study and will continue to study, there will be a price to pay for that. But for these uh, rebellious earth dwellers, fear God. Fear God, because judgment is come, it says. You know, this phrase here, I want to pause and look at this phrase back up in uh, 
verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. This is the first angel, the everlasting gospel. You know, this word gospel gets thrown around so much uh, in Christendom and Christian circles nowadays, doesn't it? There's the different different groups, even different cults try to to say there are different gospels in the Word of God, and they try to they try to they create separate try to create separation in the body of Christ by by cutting us up into different groups. Right? Well, can I see this next graphic? Other gospels. When we study the Word of God, there are there are other gospels. Let me just say that. But guess what? Gospel simply means good tidings. It means good news. But as far as other gospels, look at this. There are false gospels. Paul tells us in Second Corinthians eleven four and in Galatians chapter one verse six, which will be propagated by false teachers. Okay, so false good news. Okay, there will be. Liars, Satan is a liar, and they'll be they'll be trying to change the gospel, manipulate the gospel, turn it into a works-based salvation somehow. Okay, faith plus works equals salvation, which is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, which is not the everlasting good news. Okay, I think if people would just say good news, it would clear up a lot of this. Okay, what is the good news? Well, it's Jesus on the cross, crucified in the empty tomb. All right. Gabriel brought good news, announcing the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. The angelic host to the shepherds brought good news, didn't they? So wouldn't that be a gospel? The news of the spiritual growth of the Thessalonian church. Guess what? In 1 Thessalonians 3.6, that was good news. Is that a gospel unto itself? The seventh angel as well. In Revelation 10 that we studied revealed the mystery of the God. Uh, the mystery of God will be finished what good news that is, huh? And of course, the preaching of the kingdom that comes to us in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. We studied that this last summer uh, at length, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom, right? Essentially, we are ambassadors, right? One day, Jesus will sit on that throne in Jerusalem. He is the king of kings. People want to say they're Republicans or Democrats, right? We like to say that we're monarchists, right? We're members of the kingdom, we are uh, ambassadors from a foreign land. We're strangers in a strange land. Our citizenship is in heaven, amen. And one day when that kingdom comes and it's here and it's among us, again, dimensional aspects at play here, uh, there we'll have it. But I want you to notice something else. And uh, verse seven, can I see verse seven again? Maybe back up, Eva. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. The main thing that we pay attention to there is that what? The time has come. Time is up. Final call, right? But this, I underlined it for you. Guess what? Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Why does God make a special point there to bring up the fact that he is the creator. Why is the Holy Spirit always pointing back to him as the creator of all things, right? It's important. I just want you to notice that the, that verse 7 is creation-oriented. Him who made the heaven and the earth, okay? This is important for us to understand and, and, and lay hold of and not let go because there is an arrogance today, church, uh, of anti-God science, Right? Everybody loves to say, it's science. Why? Because science, right? Well, there is an arrogance 
in the scientific community today that is very much anti-God, all right? Um, and it wasn't always so. It wasn't always so. You know, some of the, even still to this day, our, the scientists that we have today, they'll point to people like Kepler. They'll point to people like Sir Isaac Newton and say, these were the most brilliant minds ever, right? Uh, Newton uh, put it to bed the flat earth stuff, right? He said that the sun was the center of the solar system, not the earth. And the Catholic Church almost killed him for that, right? One of the most brilliant minds out there. Well, guess what? Sir Isaac Newton loved Bible prophecy. He studied it. Can I see this next graphic? It wasn't always so, this anti-God arrogance of the scientific community. It wasn't always so. Johannes Kepler. This is the guy, by the way, who penned charts of the stars with a pencil. He didn't have a supercomputer, right? Well, guess what? Looking at his work, NASA, you can go to Stellarium, you can go to all these cool apps now that we've got on our phones and everything else that have star charts and the planets right where they are. When, they, when NASA created their star charts, they looked at Kepler's work and they found that Kepler was 99% right. That's how brilliant he was with a pencil. Well, what did Kepler say? He said this. He said he referred to God as a divine mathematician whose mind could be discovered in the precise mechanics, precise mechanics of the universe. That was the leading scientist of the day, right? Right along with Sir Isaac Newton, who came on shortly after him. Sir Isaac Newton, what did he say? The divine presence who set the universe in motion. This most beautiful system of the sun, the planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of the intelligent and powerful being. I already mentioned that Newton also wrote over a million words of Bible commentary. And guess what, church? He regarded the word of God as literal. Literal. Not allegorical, not figuratively. You know, when the, when the word of God uses tons of figures of speech and metaphors, but whenever it does, it explains them. If it gives a metaphor, to, Jesus gives a metaphor, he explains it shortly after. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. And another angel. So there's angel 1. Now we have angel 2. Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Anytime you see things repeated in the Word of God, it's for emphasis. Uh, we don't necessarily do that in the English language, but in uh in their language, in the Aramaic and the Greek, it's for emphasis, that great city. Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is the first mention of Babylon. And Babylon is about to take center stage in chapters 17 and 18 that we'll see in a few weeks here. Babylon, church, has been Satan's headquarters since the beginning since the beginning, what you talk about Nimrod's Babylon, the Babylon that's in modern-day Iraq that Saddam Hussein was rebuilding, right? That Babylon, that city, it's more than just that. There's spiritual Babylon as well, the spirit, and the spiritual Babylon that is mystery Babylon, and we'll get into all that. We don't have time for it tonight, but we, th we think of the ancient Babylon, the worship of Semiramis, who was the female principal deity at the time, right? 
Babylon is the fountainhead of all false religions across the earth. You need to understand that. You need to know that. Everything from Hinduism to Buddhism. Buddhism is really nothing more than a cult broken off of Hinduism. Uh, Islam, all of them have fountainheads, you know, from, uh, from Babylon. Is fallen, is fallen. I mentioned that briefly a second ago. This is an aoristic tense. It means, in other words, as we would say, if we were going to say it in the English tongue, we'd say it's history. Babylon, it's history. And it is near to happen, church. It is near to happen. Uh, Babylon, uh, you know, interestingly, there's a lot of great conjectures as the United States Babylon. We've talked about that before, even recently in the past few months. Um, I believe it quite possibly is Mystery Babylon without getting into that too much. But, you know, if, if Babylon were to be, a, if it's literal, which we tend to believe, then is Babylon the city going to be rebuild, rebuilt? Hasn't really been rebuilt, so it's it going to be completely destroyed. It says it'll be completely destroyed. Uh, we'll get there in chapters 17 and 18, but uh, I believe Mystery Babylon will be completely destroyed. And I believe they go hand in hand. I think it's spiritual, it's physical, it's all of the above. All of the above. Verse 9, let's keep reading. Then the third angel, what did I say? We're going to see seven angels. One, two, three. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, forehead or hand, right? We covered that in chapter 13. Verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. We're getting into some serious stuff here, guys, aren't we? That doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Um You know, people will present their theories that they think that we will be here for the tribulation. I don't believe we'll be here for the tribulation, and this is one of the ex reasons why uh, we're promised that we will not suffer God's wrath as his bride. We're his children. We're also the bride of Christ, right? We're his bride. be like beating up the bride before the wedding, right? No. No, not at all. If you look at the Jewish uh, uh, Galilean marriage ceremony and the seven days in the chuppah tent and such a beautiful study. We have that on our uh, uh, YouTube channel. I believe uh, Ron had done a study on that for us uh, a while back and we've studied it as well at, at other uh, points, especially around the fall, uh, Yom Teruah, feasts of the Lord and whatnot. So hopefully you can find that there if you're interested. But Church, this is this is not Satan persecuting the church here anymore. This is not this is not suffering at the hands of wicked people. This is God pouring out His judgment. Remember, a time has come to pour out judgment upon the wicked. We just read it. So, if we're here, we're getting that too. The only remember the only people who are here that are kept safe, the hundred and forty four thousand, right? Well, they're Jews. They're, this, they're the chaste Jews, remember who they were, that have been kept, that are brought back in Revelation chapter 7, while they're here proclaiming the everlasting gospel to the world as one last, hey, one last shot for everybody. 
uh, they're still kept safe. Not one is lost, but that's 144,000. And I'm sorry for the, uh, for the Jehovah's Witnesses that aren't Jewish people. That's not you. That's not you. That is not you, okay? So, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of Jesus the Lamb. Angel 3 here, this, this is a fatal choice, guys, all right? This is, and it's not a popular, it's not a popular uh, narrative these days, right? Uh, it's a fatal choice. This, like I said, it does not involve the church, which has been redeemed clearly by this point. Verse 11, verse 11, let's finish the thought. And the smoke of their torment ascends, how long? Forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. Remember, everyone here at that time, if you don't take the mark, you're killed. If you don't take the mark and or if you give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, you're beheaded. You're killed at that point. Okay? So everybody here will be earth dwellers. They'll have the mark. They'll have the mark. Okay? And the smoke of their torment ascends forever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Go back and watch chapter 13 from two weeks ago if, you're, if you missed it, okay? Whoever receives the mark of his name, that 666 is the name of a man. It's his name. It's loyalty. It's a pledge to worship him, okay? It's a lot of different <laughs> possibilities on who he is and who he could be and dimensional aspects and my goodness, just go watch the video, okay? But forever and ever, forever and ever, I want to focus on that. The smote, smoke of their smote, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. What does that mean? Let me see this next graphic. Really, that that breaks down into ages of ages, and it's used. That phrase is used twelve different times in the book, guys. Eight times is ages of, and ages of ages is, to, uh, refer, is said in referencing the glory of the Father and of Christ. Three different times it's uh, referenced uh, in regards to the duration of punishment of the devil and his, his own, his own, okay, and those who take the mark. And one time right here, uh, one time right here, People who insist on following him by taking the mark. So I missed that a second ago. But fire, torment. Mm. You know, what is fire symbolic of? Is, or is it symbolic at all? So they'll be tormented in fire forever and ever, right? With fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. Is this fire here symbolic? You know, if you read in Matthew chapter 13, verse 36 through 42, it implies that it's literal. It, guys, it implies that it's literal. The literalness of hell is a serious issue. And I'm bringing this back up again because this. Bad teaching is becoming very prevalent in the church today. Nobody likes to think about anybody suffering, right? Because we're not monsters, right? Nobody does that. Your worst enemy, you don't want them to suffer if you have any good inside of you at all, right? Which everybody, everybody does. And God would have it that none be lost for that, for that sake. But there is only one way that leads to salvation, only one name under which 
All men and women can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, and faith in his finished work of the cross, and faith in the empty tomb, and that he holds your eternity in his hand, You that you are his, right? Guys, this is a serious issue, which you know, we tend to avoid addressing in the church. But you've got to understand that God will not mix mercy with his judgment. He'll not mix mercy with his judgment. When his judgment comes, it is truly to pour wrath out upon the wicked. You can look up for me, look up for me Psalm uh, chapter 75, verse 8, uh, or Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, verse 2, all right? The seven bowls of wrath are coming. They're not here yet. We haven't got to them yet, but they are coming. The seven bowls of wrath, and that is truly wrath. We may not like the concept of torment. We may not like the concept of torment, but we are dealing with holy love. Holy love, church. And both words are paramount. Holy love. Both words are paramount. The righteousness righteous, true righteousness of God is also the issue here, okay? True righteousness is, can I, let me ask you this, can a holy God not, not bring his vindication and judgment on evil and those who embrace it and do, do it against him and against his beloved, okay? Can a holy God not bring vindication and judgment? Of course he must, you know, there's a, we've got to become comfortable. It's like I said, it's an uncomfortable conversation and that's why it's not had often in the church. But the word of God is the word of God and it says what it says. There is a doctrine of endless punishment. Can I see this next graphic? Salvation itself, salvation itself supposes a prior damnation. It's just, if we look at this and analyze it logically, why do we need saving? What's, because, well, what's, what, why do we need saving? Because, well, what's the other outcome? Damnation. So we need it in order to escape danger, okay? In order to escape danger, one must believe in it, right? You must believe in damnation if you're to escape it, right? And that's what's so frightening about where we are today uh, religiously as a nation. The word of God has been abused and misused so much. Uh, outright cults of false gospels springing up all around us. I'd say the most dangerous doctrine that we see today and is also the most prevalent, and believe it or not, is alive and well, flying under the radar in a lot of the churches today, is the, the doctrine of universalism. Can I see this next graphic? Universalism. Why so dangerous? Because it blots out. It blots out the attribute of retributive justice. Okay? It blots the attribute that is retributive justice, it blots it out. It transmutes sin into misfortune, right? It turns all suffering in the world into chastisement. If you're suffering, you must be uh, being it must be because you're being chastised by God, right? It relegates the sacrifice of Christ to a deed of moral influence rather than a saving, saving act of love and victory, church. 
And essentially, it, it, turns, it turns the sacrifice of Christ into a debt that is owed to man rather than an unmerited gift. You know, like I said, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. Nobody likes to think of anybody uh, suffering or, or, or receiving damnation or punishment or judgment or wrath. You know, there's this idea, there's, there is a doctrine called annihilationism. Uh, annihilationism. It's the idea that, you know, God will just destroy people. It's an idea that, you know, the idea of what we, what did we just read in uh, 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 chapter 14? What did we just read there in chapter 14? Forever and ever torment ascends, right? That's not a very pleasant thought, is it? Damnation forever and ever, torment ascends, fire and brimstone and all of that, forever and ever. In other words, what do we say? Ages and ages, right? Nobody likes to think of that. People would much rather think, I would rather just not exist, right? Wouldn't you rather just not exist? Wouldn't that be the merciful thing for God to do, just to put them out of their misery and make them just destroy? You gotta understand though, here's the thing is, God creates life, he's not a murderer, he's not a killer. Ultimately, you have, you choose where you'll spend eternity. It's up to you. He's given you the way. He's, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, offered himself for you, freely gave himself. No man takes my life from me, but I give it freely. Matthew chapter 10. Can I see this next graphic? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 uh, reads, And fear not, fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather f uh, fear him who, which is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. This uh, doctrine of anni annihilationism, it, it tells us that, you know, that often stands on this verse to say, oh, well, it'll destroy both the soul and the body. The problem with that is, and this is their, uh, a verse they go to a lot, the problem is that with this word destroy here, it's the word of, Apollomai in Greek. And if you look at that word, it actually means to be delivered up to eternal misery. Nowhere is that word used to mean annihilation. See Matthew 9, Luke 15, John chapter 6, guys. Let me give you a few more verses on this. I don't have time to spend any, to stay here any longer. Uh, can I see this next graphic? Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. I mean, this just points to the, everybody wants to take the severity of the possibility of damnation out of things. It's not, everybody wants to lessen the consequences. That's our whole society and culture is infecting the church, is, is re the removal of consequences. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 25, verse uh, 46. And these shall go into what? Everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life or everlasting life. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 reads, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and what? Everlasting contempt. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 reads, and the devil that deceiveth them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And there it is again, the ages and ages, ever and ever. And lastly, Revelation 
20, verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death defining. We also we, are, we always love to use that uh, uh, metaphor that Chuck Missler uh, uses, uh, famously used, right? If you're born twice, you die once, right? You're born of your mother. You're born again uh, by the Holy Spirit and by faith in Jesus Christ. So you might die a death here in this mortal plane, but you'll never die again because you have eternal life. Eternal means eternal, okay? Uh, but if you are only born once in the flesh, then you die twice. You die to the flesh again, but then this is the second death to be cast into hell, into the lake of fire forever and ever. And it's not a pleasant thought. It's not a pleasant idea. So most people would rather not think about it. They'd rather not believe it. But this is the word of God. So we either, we can't pick and choose. We either believe it and know it or we don't. And we trust the Lord. We trust he's just. We trust his love. We trust him or we don't. The two deaths. Let's look at that graphic, the next graphic. Physical death, as we just said, is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from the spirit of God himself, the separation from God. Referenced in Jude chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 21. You've got to understand, guys, that the real you, you know, you're looking at me right now on this TV screen or on, on your phone or whatever you're looking at me on. You see this facade, this flesh, whatever it is. That's, this is not the real me. This is just, this is the suit that I'm wearing, right? The real me is, is my soul, is my spirit. That's the real me. This isn't even my transfigured body. As Paul said, this is my body of death. Who will save me from this body of death? What I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who saves us and redeems us eternally. And one day in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be transformed and we'll be just like him. I believe, dimensionally speaking, we'll be like we were in the garden before the fall, before sin and death entered the world. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve were like? They were likely in bodies that were transfigured, that we will one day be again. So you've got to understand, as we said in the beginning, you've got to understand the, the divine nature of things. You've got to understand the dimensional aspects of, of the creation itself as well. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. We're almost there. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, which henceforth simply means from now on, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So this voice I hear. So we have angel, 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 voice. I believe this is another angel, fourth angel. You know, it's, it's a strange assurance here, isn't it? From now on, it says. You know, this reassurance is, uh, you know, only, by the way, it's only relevant to them if they feel perhaps that they've missed the resurrection. You know, this was the anxiety of the Thessalonians, if you remember, when the Roman persecutions 
came upon them. The Roman persecutions under Nero came upon them when they began. And so Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians and then the second letter to the Thessalonians. Even uh, Philippians chapter 1 uh, addresses it too. But it's addressing uh, anxiety here. It's, this is an assurance, okay? Uh, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, from now on. Verse 14. Let's keep reading. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one, uh, upon the clouds one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his, and his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple. Here's angel number five. Crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. God is right on time. He is always right on time. But you know what? In the goodness of God, something here, there's a, a gem hidden in this uh, passage for us here. That Greek, that word in the Greek here for ripe, it actually suggests overripe, even to the degree of beginning to wither. In other words, it's suggesting that the time is late, suggesting that it's high time, that God has waited as long as he possibly could for every last one that would come into the kingdom. Verse 16, and he sat on the cloud. And this is so cool, the cloud here, Shekinah. Shekinah is the word. Have you heard that, song, or that word? Uh, you Pentecostals will probably get that more than others, right? Sat on the Shekinah, on the cloud, and thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. I've got two points for us on the Shekinah. Can we see that first graphic? That first picture? Here's a picture one. We, have, we see it mentioned throughout the Old Testament. We see the, she, the, the Shekinah, the cloud, the cloud uh, uh, of the presence of the Lord in the wilderness leading Israel by day. Uh, we see it in Exodus uh, 16, the, the, uh, the giving of the manna, who was there at the giving of the law. The second time as well the law was given. It was, it was there at the tabernacle. It was there at the mercy seat. When the seven elders were chosen, uh, uh, Moses' 70 elders were chosen in Numbers 11. It filled the temple. It said that it filled the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8. And then it departed. We see it says that it departed in Ezekiel chapter 9, 10, 18, 19, 11, and so on. We see it as well in the New Testament. Let me see the next picture. We see it in the New Testament as well. It, oversh it overshadows Mary in Luke chapter 1, 35. Luke chapter 2, verse 9, the flocks of the shepherd, it was there. At the transfiguration, Matthew 17, mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1 as well. At the ascension, the Shekinah, the cloud, that word there. At the rapture, it will be. We see the clouds, Shekinah, we see it over and over again. It's a theme, clouds, presence of God at the rapture. We will be him, we will be there with him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 17, in the moment, in the blinking of an eye, we'll be there at the rapture, at the catching away, in the clouds, in the Shekinah with the Lord. And it'll be at the return, at the end of the, at the, end of the seven-year tribulation period, we'll see it again, referenced in Matthew 24, 26, Revelation 1 and Luke 21. Mm. Verse 17, let's keep reading. For time, we're out of time. Let's keep reading. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, 
he also having a sharp sickle. So here's another angel. Here's angel number six. And another angel, angel seven, right, came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Verse 19, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So notice angel seven, note this harvest, okay? This harvest here, it is of grapes. It is not of wheat, okay? As, as in uh, verse 14 through 16, this now in 17 through 20 is of grapes, okay? There are, there are uh, uh, a, the angels are separating. Remember, remember the, the angels separate the tares from the wheat, so on and so forth, right? That's the gathering of the unrighteous, referenced in Joel chapter 3. It's referenced in Isaiah 63, Zechariah 14. Okay, I don't believe this is for the church. Okay, remember, remember, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, there are several vine idioms. Okay, the grape harvest is often the idiom for the day of the Lord. See Joel chapter 3, verse 13. Israel was God's vine. The time of Jacob's trouble. Israel was God's vine. It was planted in the land to bear fruit for God's glory, but failed, remember, and had to be cut down. Uh, see Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Matthew 21. Christ is the true vine, right? Christ is the true vine, and believers are the branches in him, all right? Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, verse 30 reads, therefore prophesy, therefore prophesy thou against them all these words and say unto them, the Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation and he shall give a shout as they that tread on the what? The grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The church is not here, guys. The church is not here. All the inhabitants. Okay, verse 20. Let's keep reading. And the wine press, the wine press was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles. By the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. This is interesting. This is pretty interesting. I think it's pretty cool. Um, it's pretty cool here. This paints a picture for us, guys. This paints a picture for us. Uh, <laughs> this is a course, this is of course a reference. We've heard the Battle of Armageddon, if you study prophecy at all. Uh, the Battle of Armageddon, blood to the horse's bridle, on average four feet deep, right? He's saying uh, 1,600, put a pin in this, 1,600 furlongs, that's 180 miles, okay? If you want to do the math and check me on this, one furlong equals 600 feet, okay? So 1,600 furlongs is 180 miles, okay? This paints a picture for us uh, of the manner, the manner by which Jesus will come on that day of the Lord at the end of the seven-year tribulation when he brings a decisive end to the battle, okay? 
Remember in Luke chapter 21, Jesus told his followers on the Mount of Olives, uh, the Olivet Discourse, as we refer to it, that when Jerusalem is surrounded to flee into the mountains, right? This was referencing uh, in Luke chapter 21, the first destruction of Israel. A lot of people get confused with this because they're very similar in Luke 21, uh, and in Mark and in Matthew, okay? Matthew and Mark recorded different briefing though, okay? It sounds similar, so people a lot of times think that they're the same, but the one in Luke is different. The one in Luke is specifically talking about the first time Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, okay? At the first destruction, uh, when Titus destroyed, the, the Romans came in and destroyed it, the believers who paid attention to Jesus, the Christians, saw that the city was surrounded, then guess what? What'd they do? They fled into the hill into the hill country. Guess what? A million Jews, it's recorded, were killed in Jerusalem in that siege. But the Christians got out of there. They got out of there because they paid attention to Jesus' warnings, okay? Uh, in this record, in this record, in Mark, Matthew and Mark, it speaks of the second coming and the end, and his warning sends believers at the time... 144,000, perhaps, to Petra, to Basra, okay? Basra, which is modern-day Petra, okay? Many believe that Jesus' first stop will be the Mount of Olives. When he comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation, what do you always hear? That he'll put his foot down on the Mount of Olives, right? It'll cause such a great earthquake, and guess what? They found a fault line right on that Mount of Olives. Interesting that the fault is right there that would divide the mountain, a lot of people think that he comes there first, but he, he comes first to those that he is protecting in Petra, be it the 144,000 or the tribulation converts, okay? Uh, whatever you want to say there. Isaiah chapter 63, verse uh, 1 through 6 reads, let's read that. The Lord in judgment and salvation, uh, who is this who comes from Edom? The headline there is Lord and Judgment and Salvation in my Bible. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed gar garments from where? Basra. So he comes from Edom, from Basra. The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Oh, that's messianic foreshadowing there. Mighty, mighty to save. Our God is what? He is mighty to save. Verse 2, why is your apparel red? Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden in the winepress alone. So, you know, we, we make a big deal out of it that when he comes, right, that all of his, uh, all of the angels and saints come with him, right? But this specific mission from Basra to Armageddon, he's alone here, okay? Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. He makes it clear, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. Verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Whew, I got chills. We remember when Jesus... And we'll talk about this a little bit on Sunday. When Jesus began his ministry, we see it in Isaiah chapter 60, 
62, Isaiah 62, where he gets up to before the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads the dektos year of the Lord, right? The acceptable year of the Lord has come. And that word in the Greek dektos means the, the year of free flowing favor where mercies and grace and prosperity abounds. That's what it means. Pretty cool. And but the rest of that verse says, and the day of vengeance to our God. But Jesus stopped and it says he closed the book. And they wanted to kill him. They wanted. They couldn't believe it, right? Because uh, he said, "This day is this is fulfilled here in your speaking." But what he didn't say was that day of vengeance was fulfilled. That day of vengeance has been on pause for about two thousand years now plus, and here it is here. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Verse five. And I looked, I looked, but there was no one to help. This is so keep in mind. He's alone, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own, f- and my own fury, it sustained me. Verse six, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Who, who is this? Who is this who comes from Eden, Edom, with dyed garments from Basra. Petra is an Edom. Okay? It is apparently an eventful journey for Jesus from Petra, Basra, to Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon. Uh, apparently, an eventful journey. Can I see this map? This next picture. Interestingly enough, if you look at a map from Petra to the Valley of Megiddo, it is exactly, would you believe, 1,600 furlongs, 180 miles exactly. As we like to say around here, fingerprints of God all over the pages of his scripture. The fingerprints of God are on every page of this book, church, my goodness. God is right on time, and he is specific, and wrath means wrath, and eternal means eternal. Forever and ever means forever and ever. Church, can I see this next picture, our outline, and we'll, uh, we'll look to wrap up here. Not bad, not bad on time tonight. Here's what we've been through so far tonight. We saw the Lamb on Zion and the 144 thousand commandos, right, that God has sent down in uh, Revelation chapter 7 to proclaim the everlasting gospel. And then we saw seven angels. The first angel with the everlasting gospel in his mouth. The second angel with the doom of Babylon. The third angel, fury on beast worshipers. And indeed, you've got to remember, they will worship the beast. These that receive the wrath. These aren't just like I mean, they worship the beast, guys, all right? I know as uncomfortable as it is for us to think of anybody suffering for eternity, you've got to understand who it is here, all right? We, and ultimately everybody has, has a choice in this. You have a choice in this, you listening tonight. Okay, the fourth angel, the voice as we talked about, uh, dealing with the righteous dead. And then the fifth, sixth, and seventh angels, they all dealt with calling uh, for the grape harvest. And I have a typo there. Oops. (laughs) So, here we go. The hour of humanity 
church as we study uh, as we study continue on next week in Revelation chapter five. As 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 dark as this may have sounded tonight, with what is to come upon the face of the earth, the hour of humanity it's about to get a lot darker. Can I read that? I'm going to read you one verse in chapter 16 to to leave you hanging for next week. Uh, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. You don't want to be here, church. You don't want to be here, and you don't want to be Israel. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. You don't want to be Israel. Get that replacement theology out of your head, okay? You and I have no idea, no comprehension of what this will be like as this is unleashed. I hope you'll tune in next week. So we set out tonight to hope to hopefully answer some questions, right, throughout the Bible. You know, guys, we see throughout the Bible, we see God's love and grace freely available, freely available to all who will accept it. It is freely available. The entire Bible, this thing, church, this entire Bible, this entire Bible, uh, it is a record of extremes that he has gone to in order to allow us to avoid the destiny of our fallen state. We fell, we separated, we broke covenant, separated ourselves from God, and he has gone to great lengths, every extreme, to bring us back to him. And what is the response of humanity? Largely, people say, no, God, you know, I don't want to love you. I don't want to love you, and I want to run things my own way, you know? So we need to think of the, the alternatives, and I'm going to close on this point tonight. We need to think about, let's think about things from God's perspective here as we close. God's got really three alternatives. Can we see this? He can indulge, okay? He can indulge it, and he can allow this to go on forever. He can indulge the sin and the the debauchery and, and everybody who says, no, I don't want to love you and I'd rather do, do things my way. He can indulge it and allow it to go on forever. But guess what? In that case, all the cruelty, all the injustice, all the hatred, all the pain and death that now prevails on the earth, it will go on forever too. Is that right? God doesn't want that. And neither does man. Neither do you, do you? Or he can force man into being robots, right? He can force, he can make the decision for us, but that's not why he made us. God is love. God is love, and he created us. And for us to understand love, we had to have choice. We had to choose to love. If you don't choose to love, that's not love. So if we're truly to know him, and especially if we're made in his image to be like him, choice has to be a part of the equation. Okay, so he can force us into being robots. However, removing our free will would also take our capacity to give our love to him freely. And as we just said, love cannot be forced. Or lastly, what can he do? He can just withdraw himself. That's what he can do. That's his third option. He can withdraw himself from those who refuse his love. He must let them have their way forever. Since, since 
God is necessary. Since God is necessary for our existence, the decision to reject God is a decision to plunge ourselves into the most terrible sense of loneliness and isolation a human being can know. And to endure this eternally without any hope. Church, we, we talk so often at Life Story Church about urgency, bold, being urgent in our boldness for the gospel. Ultimately, ultimately, it is we ourselves who choose whether God will judge us. It is we ourselves who decide either to accept or refuse his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. It is we ourselves, we ourselves, who choose everlasting life or everlasting death. So let me ask you tonight, if you're watching this, if you haven't made that decision, it's high time that you did. That hour that we read about, when the time has come, it's coming, and it's coming sooner than most people think. Have you made a decision to receive his love, accept his grace, and to love in return? You have an opportunity right now, right here tonight to do so. So you, if I'm talking to you right now, if you haven't made that decision, I want you right now, I want you to, I want you to lift up your hands before him and I want you to say this, I want you to say, Jesus, I receive your love. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin as fruit of that love. I believe you rose from the grave on the third day. I believe that it is finished. I believe that my sin is atoned for by the sacrifice that you made for me in love. I believe that you're God, Jesus. Oh Lord, I put my faith and my trust in you that the cross was enough, the empty, empty tomb was enough to give me life eternally. Oh Lord Jesus, receive, receive my faith here tonight, Lord. Lord, I change my mind, I repent, which means I change my mind. I didn't believe, I now believe. I put my faith in you and I ask you to save me on that day when you come. Come for me. Mm. I trust that my eternity is safe in your hands. Oh, that though I may not, I may not achieve righteousness on my own. Your righteousness is enough and that you paid it all. Receive me as your own, your child, your son, your daughter, your bride. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, homework for next week, Revelation chapter 15. Read through it and we'll go through it together line by line, verse by verse. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour favor out on your lives. May you go in grace and prosper in all you do in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.